Uh, have you ever had an argument with somebody and then discovered that somebody else heard it? And whenever that somebody else asks you what you were arguing about, you get really embarrassed. Well, it happened to the disciples. They'd been walking along, having a row with each other about who was the greatest. But it turns out that Jesus had overheard them. And whenever he asks them what they were arguing about, they don't know what to say. There are red faces all around, especially whenever Jesus sits them down and says something that reveals to them that he knew exactly what they were bickering about. Now, on Sunday mornings here at Windsor, we have been revisiting every incident in Mark's Gospel. Now, there were over 70 incidents, and so far we've done 39 of them. We're up to number 40. And you need to know if you're visiting that we're traveling quite quickly. This is only week 8. And the reason that we're doing this is because we hope that every contact we have with Jesus in Mark's gospel, every contact with his life, with his teaching, with his example, will leave a trace of Jesus in us, on us, and with us. Okay, back to Capernaum. Having overheard their disagreement, Jesus says this to them. If anyone wants to be the first or to be the greatest, he must be the very last or the least And the servant of all. And those words must have really stung. And the reason they stung was because this kingdom expression was extremely countercultural. It was then and it still is. Because surely if you want to be first, you've got to seek to be first. You've got to promote yourself. You've got to sell yourself. You've got to get ahead. You've got to do whatever it takes to be first. But Jesus comes along and he cuts right through and right across that line of thinking and he introduces some more of this upside down kingdom logic that humanly speaking makes no sense. A bit like whoever wants to save his life will lose it and whoever wants to lose his life for me in the gospel will save it as Alison has referred to already. Paradoxes everywhere. So if you want to be first, you've got to be last. And in the kingdom of God, true greatness would come, it seems, not through this idea of self-promotion, but via humility and a servant's spirit. And that is nonsense. Especially in a culture that thrives on individualism and meism. And it's funny, although it's not really that funny when you think about it, but less than a chapter ago, Jesus had issued the radical call of discipleship. And the first step in the process was to deny self. It's pretty obvious the disciples weren't listening. And they must have heard what Jesus had to say. The issue was they didn't bother to listen. And so as they walked along that road to Capernaum, self-denial was a million miles away from their thinking. Even though they just heard Jesus say that if you want to be my disciple, this is what's involved. As they walk along, they're arguing about who is the greatest. And in some ways that comforts me. Because, you know, I've heard Jesus say so much in my life. But I am unbelievably struck by how seldom I really seem to listen. 
And you remember last week at the Transfiguration, there was that voice that came out of the cloud that said, This is my son whom I love. Listen to him. We have heard a lot from Jesus in these past seven weeks. The question always is, are we actually listening to him? The disciples clearly needed more teaching. They needed another perspective. And so what Jesus does is he takes a visual aid in the form of a little child to reinforce his point. And the tenderness that Jesus shows to this little child in these moments is striking. And it's particularly moving whenever you realize that aside from normal family affection, children were not highly thought of in that culture at that time. There were no prizes, there were no rewards, there was no credit given for time invested with children. In fact, they were generally looked down on, they were dismissed, they were ignored, they had little status, they had no prestige. And so by cradling this little boy in his arms, Jesus was making a profound point. He says, if you want to be first... You need to embrace the least. But you'll notice the added dimension. Take a look at verse 37. Because what Jesus actually says is that in reaching out to the least, in identifying with the least, in embracing the least, in welcoming the least, in serving the least, you welcome Jesus. In fact, you not only welcome Jesus, but you welcome the Father who sent him. And that is the pathway to true greatness. Question. Who have we cradled in our arms this week? Who will we cradle in our arms in this incoming week? In order to welcome Jesus and to welcome the Father who sent him. The next incident only lasts four verses, but it's incredibly important. You know, last week we discovered that the disciples were unable to drive out an evil spirit from a young boy. Well, here in verse 38 we discover that the disciples are critical of someone who can do exactly that. And they do it in Jesus' name. But you know what the problem was? The someone wasn't one of them. And so John, the appointed spokesman, he is sent to take up the issue with Jesus. And John, you see, and the other disciples, it seems, they wanted to restrict those working in Jesus' name. They wanted to restrict working in Jesus' name to their own particular group. To a specific in crowd. But Jesus was having none of it. You see John wanted to be exclusive. Jesus was inclusive. And I suppose as I've thought about this. This is a scene that gets played out time and time again. In many church and Christian contexts. Up and down this country of ours particularly. And I think it breaks God's heart. And I know it really does rattle me if I'm honest. People do things. They minister in Jesus' name. They honor Jesus. They're for Jesus. They're not against Jesus. But the dilemma is they're not one of us and therein lies the problem. And therefore we get suspicious and we feel threatened and we write them off. We even become judgmental. Why is that? It's because they're not one of us. And the danger is that we risk adopting a position of superiority and we separate and we create distance between ourselves and other Christians. And I'm convinced it breaks God's heart. And the Apostle Paul writing to Christian or writing about Christian fellowship and acceptance offered this advice on one occasion. Accept each other. How should you accept each other? In the same way that Christ has accepted you. And the fact is, and the truth is, and the reality is, Jesus accepts us based on our faith in him. End of story. 
And Warren Wearsby, writing on this, says, It is not our responsibility to decide the requirements for Christian fellowship in a church. Only the Lord can do this. To set up man-made restrictions on the basis of personal prejudice or even convictions is to go beyond the word of God. Because God has received us, we must receive one another. So much more could be said in this. So much more should be said in this. But let's make sure we promote the kingdom of God and not some kingdom of division and separation. Jesus then goes on to say that anyone who gives you a cup of water in my name because you belong to Christ will certainly not lose his reward. You know, doing something so insignificant, so basic, so simple, such as giving someone a glass of water can be done in Jesus' name and therefore impacts life on an eternal dimension. Heaven takes note. And I hope that that comes as something of an encouragement to each of us, that every act of kindness, every helping hand offered, every caring, thoughtful word spoken, every compassionate deed done, every game of table tennis played in the name of Jesus is highly and eternally significant. It's another pathway to true greatness. Jesus continues to teach, but in this next section, the language and the imagery that Jesus uses is quite extreme. In fact, as I read this, and I'm sure as you listen to it, I find it quite disturbing because Jesus begins with a shocking warning. You're better off dead than causing a little one to sin. Now, either that means a little one in the Christian faith, Or else, given the visual aid that Jesus just used, it could mean a literal little child. But either way, you're better off lying at the bottom of the ocean with a huge stone tied round your neck than to cause one of them to sin. Do you know, technically speaking, we can't make anyone sin. But we can and we do influence others via our words and our behaviour, and our choices, and our decisions, and our attitudes. And therefore, given the seriousness of what Jesus is saying here, it's absolutely essential that we guard against having a negative impact on those around us. Do you know, as I think back over the previous week, the words that I have spoken, and my behaviour, When I'm confronted with this sort of teaching, I've got to ask myself, have I in any way caused a little one to sin? And Jesus then turns to the problem of sin in our own lives. And considering last week we looked at the radical call of discipleship, deny yourself, take up your cross, follow me, Jesus now begins to unpack the radical challenge of discipleship. But before we look at the specifics, let me just give you the overall thrust of the next section in a nutshell. Here's it summarized. True disciples of Jesus Christ, authentic Christ followers, take sin seriously. So seriously it would seem you're prepared to undergo major surgery. And in full technicolor and very graphic terms, Jesus talks about cutting off your own hands and your own feet and gouging out your own eyes. Whenever Alison was reading to us, Cara, my middle girl, just looked at me whenever she heard those words being read. And it is shocking 
Jesus clearly wasn't expecting anybody to engage in self-mutilation. But a staggering phrasing leaves us in no doubt that we need to be, we should be, we must be ruthless. We have got to be severe in dealing with personal sin. An an indifferent, a blasé, or an apathetic approach is unacceptable. It's unnatural of true disciples. Intensive spiritual surgery is required. But why hands, feet and eyes? Why did Jesus choose those three body parts? Well, there's no specific reason given. But it could be that hands refer to what a person does. Our actions, our reactions, our behaviour, our deeds. Feet Well, they refer to the direction we take, the choices we make that take us in certain directions, the plans that we establish, the places we go, the environments we enter, the tracks we walk. And then eyes, well, they're the gateway of discernment. What we see, what we watch, what we read, what we observe, what we focus on, it's either positive or it's negative. It's either helpful or it is damaging. The eyes are the doorway to our hearts and our minds. And therefore, what we observe will impact our thought life. It will impact our belief system. It will influence the way we think and what we actually think about. So if our hands and our feet and our eyes cause us to sin, if we're going somewhere, if we're doing something, if we're watching something that is wrong, we need to deal with it, and we need to deal with it brutally. You've got to hack it off. You've got to rip it out. And the whole point of this teaching is this. Discipleship is radical. It demands sacrifice. You know, sometimes you hear people speaking today about becoming a Christian or being a Christian as if following Jesus is to find personal fulfillment and satisfaction. That being a Christian will actually meet your felt needs. And for me, that is only going to lead us in one grand adventure and missing the point. Because as Tom Wright says... There's a war on. God is at work in our world. So are the forces of evil. And there really is no time or space for self-indulgent spiritualities that shirk the slightest personal cost. Last week, one of the the questions I flashed up on the screen at the end was, what does self-denying, cross-carrying, following Jesus actually look like in day-to-day life? Because there's no point firing up these phrases, there's no point reading these if we can't actually translate them into daily life. So what does it actually mean to deny yourself, to pick up your cross and follow Jesus on a daily basis? Well, one of the things it means is you take sin seriously, you hack stuff off and you cut stuff out. And to add even further weight to this teaching, and to ensure that we take this lesson seriously, Jesus introduces the incredibly sensitive subject of hell. It's the first time it's appeared in Mark. And he says, it's better for you to enter life maimed than with two hands to go into hell where the fire never goes out. It's better for you to enter life crippled than to have two feet and be thrown into hell. And it is better to enter the kingdom of heaven with one eye than to have two eyes and thrown into hell where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Now, the minute you mention hell in a contemporary context, emotions stir, heckles rise, and people get very uncomfortable. And I'm only referring to a contemporary church context. This is a profoundly, intensely unpopular subject to talk about in here, never mind out there. 
But based on these words, as as I read them in Mark 9, let me just say a few things about hell. And the word used here is Gehenna. It appears 12 times in the New Testament, and every time it appears, Jesus uses it. And Gehenna, as I understand it, is the valley that runs past the southwest corner of the old city of Jerusalem. And in ancient times, it was used as Jerusalem's rubbish tip, smouldering continually. And by Jesus' day, it had already become a metaphor of the fate after death of those who reject God's way. Here, Jesus combines the two meanings, and in the words, and in, 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 in words, he implies three things about hell from Mark 9 that I just want to highlight. Hell is a place that can be entered, it seems, according to verses 43, 45, 47. Hell is forever, eternal, everlasting in duration. Verses 43, 48, and hell is a place to be avoided, the entire section. You do not, it seems, under any circumstances want to find yourself in this place. And so the importance of taking sin seriously can never be underestimated. Do you know next Friday the 29th of May, a new film will be released in our cinemas. I know nothing about its content But its title is this, Drag Me to Hell. And the mere thought is deeply, deeply disturbing. But it seems, according to these solemn words of Jesus, that sin actually has the ability to drag you to that place. Verses verses 49 and 50 are two of the most difficult verses in the entire New Testament. Do you know there are so many different takes on them? So many views and opinions from biblical commentators? And I'm not going to even attempt to explore them all, but let me offer you a couple of perspectives. Look at verse 49. It says, everyone will be salted with fire. What in the world does that mean? Everyone will be salted with fire. Let me ask you a question. What do salt and fire have in common? They both do what? Purify, refine, exactly. To connect that to what Jesus has just been saying, here's what I think. You can have your take on this. Cutting out sin from your life is a form of purification. It's a form of spiritual refinement. The Apostle Paul, whenever he was writing to a bunch of Christians in Corinth, he said this, let us purify, get this, ourselves. Please hear those words. Let us purify ourselves from everything that contaminates the body and the spirit. How do we do that? Again, I read phrases like that and I'm always left with the question, okay, how do you do that? I hear what it's saying, but how do you actually do it? Well, let me suggest to you, you cut off and you rip out. And the second perspective builds on the first and it relates to verse 50 because what Jesus said is salt is good. In his so-called Sermon on the Mount, Jesus declared that we are actually the salt of the earth. That means in part, and we know this, that we are to be a refining influence. We are to be a purifying influence on the world around us and on people around us. Therefore, Jesus says, salt is good. But let's go on. He then says, but if if it loses its saltiness, if we lose our potency as Christians, what happens? We become ineffective. We are no longer, actually this is how Jesus puts it in Matthew 5, we are no longer good for anything when you lose your saltiness other than to be trampled underfoot. 
begs the question, how does a Christian actually lose his or her saltiness? How can it be made salty again? And for me, we're back to this issue that Jesus has been talking about. It has all got to do with how seriously you take the reality of sin in your own life. That's what's going to help you or lead you to lose your saltiness. How do you regain your saltiness? You deal with this stuff. I, I find this uncomfortable teaching. I don't, I don't enjoy teaching this stuff. I'll be perfectly honest. It is uncomfortable. But I know one of the questions some people might be asking, it's a fair question, does God not deal with sin in our lives? You were emphasizing this whole thing about Paul saying, let us purify ourselves. Is that not God's deal? It's not us that does it, surely. This all sounds like, David, you're implying that sorting out sin is about what I do. Well, yes, ultimately God does deal with sin. But never lose sight of that little word that appears time and time again, if. If we confess our sin, God's faithful. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and will turn from their wicked ways. If you do that, I'll hear. I'll heal your land. I'll forgive your sin. You see, I need to go under the knife. The problem is the knife is partly in my own hand. I need to cut and I need to rip. I choose what I do. I choose where I go. I choose what I observe. So I have a major part to play in my own spiritual surgery. And the question is, what, what is it this morning that needs to be removed from our lives in order that we will become salty again? Final incident. And we're on to the issue of divorce. Hell and divorce in one morning. You've actually no idea how much I wanted to take a sickie. But I've sort of thought that pastors are probably not really allowed to do that. Jesus headed into a different region. And a crowd turns up again. And Jesus does what Jesus always does whenever a crowd turns up. At least this is what he always did in Mark's gospel whenever a crowd turned up. He just taught them. As was his custom, it says. But as usual, there's always another group hanging around with an increasingly predictable agenda. To trap Jesus. The Pharisees, it says in verse 2, they came. Why did they come? It says they came to test him. Remember, these guys had no desire to be taught. They had no heart to learn. They were only there for one reason, and that was to find fault with Jesus. And they had tried to catch Jesus out in various issues. And if you've been journeying with us, you know they tried to catch him out on the issues of Sabbath, on the issues of fasting, on the issues of cleanliness. And now it's time for another tricky one. Let's talk about divorce, Jesus. And so the question is asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? And what does Jesus do whenever he gets asked a question? He answers by asking another question. It's brilliant. So he asks another question in verse 3. The Pharisees give an answer. It's in verse 4. And what it actually is, it's a quote from Deuteronomy. It's a quote from Deuteronomy 24. But the problem is they don't actually answer Jesus' question. Jesus asked them, what did Moses command? What they answered was what they thought Moses permitted. Two totally different things. Moses, it seems, did allow divorce with strict controls in place regarding proper written procedures. But notice why Jesus says Moses had to do that. It's in verse 5 there. He had to do it because their hearts were hard. The heart of the problem 
is the problem of the heart. And there were different schools of thought at the time regarding Deuteronomy 24. And the Pharisees, what they were really trying to do was suss out which school, which line do you fall on, Jesus? Because we're really keen to get one over on you. So let's hear what you think on this one. Well, what Jesus does is, in a sense, he bypasses Deuteronomy and he takes them straight back to the beginning. Back to Genesis, a book they all believed Moses wrote anyway. Back to the original intention. Back to the blueprint. And it's all there in verses 6 to 9. We don't have time to read. Alison already has. The bond of husband and wife creates a new human being, so to speak. Two become one flesh. And says Jesus, no one can separate that. That's God's idea. Now the Pharisees at this point don't seem to reply, or at least there's no record of them replying. So publicly, the teaching session is over. That's it. Privately, Jesus then takes his disciples indoors, as he often does, and they go, Jesus, what was that about? And so Jesus says what you see there in verses 11 and 12. And whenever you read verses 11 and 12, In a context like this, it sounds harsh, it sounds difficult, it sounds hard, and surely so much more needs to be said, David, is what you're thinking right now. This, let me remind you, is not a sermon or an attempt at a biblical exposition on marriage and divorce. This is a whistle-stop tour through Mark's Gospel. The words of Jesus here are quite startling. But all I can say, or all I will say, is that God's ideal clearly reflects the heart of Jesus regarding marriage. Is Jesus unrealistic? Is Jesus idealistic? No. The reason is that Jesus was well aware of the problem with the human heart. Jesus knew that hard hearts would damage relationships. All relationships, including married relationships. But why did Jesus come? What was the kingdom of God about? The kingdom of God was about Jesus coming to change and transform and soften hearts. And we all know God's ideal for marriage. Jesus highlights it here. But we also know the reality of broken, dysfunctional relationships all around us. And many people even here this morning find themselves in different places today. They find themselves in not ideal places. But for now, all I want to say is the condition of your heart this morning is critical. It's the state of your heart. It's the softness of your heart that matters. And to say, I know there's so much more could be said, but that's as much as I can say based on what we have looked at this morning. Seven questions to take away this morning. Just usually more than that. How do you welcome others? particularly the least in Jesus' name. How do you actually do that? You don't literally cradle. Maybe. Why do we sometimes struggle with those who are not one of us? Thinking back over the past week, is there anything you've said or done that might have caused the little one to sin? A bit of personal reflection. Why do you think Jesus was so extreme in his language? Why is hell increasingly difficult to talk about in church? How do we lose our saltiness? How can we be made salty again? And why is the condition of our hearts so critical in marriage? As usual, if you want a copy of those, and I know lots of you do, and I really appreciate it, drop me an email.